Welcome to episode 9 of the Story of Podcast, where a bunch of guys choose a topic, research it individually, meet back up to talk about what we found, put the puzzle pieces together, and to tell you about this week's topic, which is the story of Willowbrook State Hospital in Staten Island, New York. Um, this is a pretty crazy topic, one that hits close to home for myself and our uh our other host and only other host for the week, which is Marcus Carcass. What's going on, buddy? How are you? Dan, what a absolute privilege and a pleasure to be uh, in your company yet again this week. Oh, no, sir. The privilege is all on this side of the screen, my friend. It's all on this side of the screen. But yeah, man, this is... Uh, so this week, it's just me and Mark, or Mark and I, to be proper English. Bill is home. He was fighting off the flu. So if you listen to last week's episode, his family was had it. And he was taking care of them all, and 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 our and our brother in arms went down this week, and then Joe is off working because that's like literally all he does. He works like I don't know twenty seven out of thirty days in the month, so he's out there, uh, you know, busting the hump, hitting the concrete, and all that good stuff. So Joe and Bill, we love you guys, uh, and we are thinking about you guys. Mark and I knew a little bit earlier on in the week that it was just going to be him and I. And so we switched up the the topic to be a little bit more appropriate. Uh, and as Mark, I think you put it earlier today, kind of goes into our origin story, uh, which I thought was a pretty cool way of putting it. It, it is. Uh, it's the way that you and I uh, had met each other, really. Yeah. I mean, it's um, I mean, not Willowbrook itself. <laughs> yeah, we weren't uh, in Willowbrook. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Dan, and I were, Dan, Dan and I were roommates. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I kid, of course. No, nobody had a room in, in Willowbrook. No, no. Well, we, if we were yeah, roommates, so, right. we had twenty-seven <laughs> other roommates at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Right. All it, all drowning in our own feces. Yes. But, uh, no. Um. Uh, in all seriousness, so uh, Dan and I uh, met working uh, for a mental uh, health agency, and at our orientation for any uh, new hires, uh, we had to watch this special. Uh, about Willowbrook, and it was horrifying. I'd never, uh, I'd never heard of Willowbrook before that had happened. Um, so after a few years of uh, of working at that place um, together, uh, that I had really observed uh, some really vile corruption uh, in what I thought was that specific agency. Um, resigned got a job immediately at another agency that had uh, more of a, that was more reputable. And I remember thinking, I'm glad I got out of that other place because I was very proud of the work I did there. But I always had these feelings of guilt that the better work I did, the better I made demons look. Mm. Um, that my intentions were pure and I was you know, uh, filling the coffers of people who who maybe didn't have the purest of intentions. When I got hired at this new agency, which was regarded as a really good one, uh, oddly enough, at orientation day, I had to watch that Willowbrook story again. 
I believe it's it's actually required by the state of New York. I think that's uh, I think it's actually a state requirement that any new hires into that field must watch it. If I'm not mistaken, I might could be absolutely mistaken, but I'm pretty sure it's like required training. Like you must know about Willowbrook. Which, you know, I found very, <laughs> very interesting uh, because in both of these agencies that made me watch this video and it, it was almost uh, like, as you're watching it, kind of babe in the woods, you're kind of naive to this whole mm. thing. You know, I, I know you and I uh, were both, you know, fresh faced, still in our, our 20s, you know, yeah. maybe had a bit of a brighter outlook about the world and we watched this and we're like, oh my God, you know, and I think that... Um, and what, which of course we'll dive into much greater detail as this goes on, but the conditions were absolutely horrific. Um, and you know, while it seemed to me that day at orientation when they were showing us this uh, film, um, what it was uh, supposed to be was to show us like how far we've come and how we as a society have treated the mentally ill. And in an ironic twist, the impact it actually had on me in both of these agencies that I worked at, which led me to the conclusion that it wasn't the vile corruption that I thought it was in the specific agencies that I worked, but that it's systemic and that at any point in time, uh, you privatize the process of providing services to people that are cognitively incapable of understanding what services they are entitled to and what services their staff are supposed to be providing for them. Yep. And, and rarely able to advocate for themselves as well when, when they exactly. are being treated mis, you know, uh, inappropriately. Yeah, I agree. Um, in the customer service field, you know, we all know, you know, now it, the, the, the term Karen um, <laughs> is widely circulated. And for people like me that work in the customer service field, you know, when I get home from work, I, I go on YouTube and I watch these Karen compilation videos as entertainment because while I maintain an air of professionalism in my interactions, it's a lot of fun for me to, you know, to watch the video on YouTube of the employee who, you know, just has that fucking all moment. And well, just who, yeah, who, who does exactly what you would love to do, <laughs> you know, if you didn't right. have bills you had to pay and but, a sustainability that needs to be uh, taken care of, you know? Exactly. Um, but the the thing about the Karens is that they know exactly what you are supposed to be doing for them as customer service. And if you fall a millimeter short of that, they know how to advocate <laughs> for themselves. And I'd like they to speak do. to your manager. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the complete opposite of right of the individuals that we, we helped to take care of themselves, you know? Exactly. I I like to say uh, advocated for. Yeah. Yeah. That's why that's... I don't like the term took care of because it was not that. In some cases, uh, when we were working in TBI, which is traumatic brain injury, that was a little bit more of taking care of. It was a little bit more in depth, a little bit more hands on uh, in that particular area that we worked in. But when we were at the day hab, that was definitely more of an advocating for them. Absolutely. hundred percent. I agree. Okay, so basically every six months, these individuals have a meeting with the counselor to determine goals. Mm. So somebody who, say, has a budgeting goal, for example, uh, 
you'll get a number of people and their goal will be to be able to to budget finances better. So you have this hub. It's a central location. It's a giant room holds between 60 and 70 uh, people. Uh, and they all get bussed in from group homes in the surrounding uh, towns. Uh, at which point, when they all arrive, they get divvied up into six or seven groups because that's how many staff there are. And they'll say, all right, do you people uh, have a budgeting goal as per um, your particular staff that, at your semi-annual meeting? So you're going to go off with, uh, with John and he's going to take you into the community to learn budgeting. And most of these people, understanding that in a group home, maybe you live with like 10 other people and you got to wake up at like four o'clock in the morning just to get a shower before they throw you on this van and, and shuttle you off before, you know, I I know how I feel before the caffeine is kicked in on my way to work, you know? So now they're getting shoved into this van with, you know, nine other people from their group home. And many of them, they may not get along with very well. Absolutely. And unfortunately, it doesn't matter one lick because that's where where they are, like it or not. So they get to the central hub and thrown into another van. Maybe they had enough time to sit down and, uh, you know, eat eat a little snack before they get put on another van. And they don't maybe necessarily... Uh, have a full grasp on what the staff that's assigned to them is supposed to be doing for them. But they are just, they are absolutely thrilled to be out of their group home yeah. for the day. Just get out so in the community, not, change the scene. And so this, uh, for example, and this is an example that disturbingly I observed countless times in my time working in this field, which is that if these people had a budgeting goal, what the staff was supposed to do is put them on a van and then take them. Shut it. Sorry. Uh, and she's she's yelling at me uh, for a, a treat. Is what's happening. So I do apologize. Um, so so the that's, budgeting that's goal Mark's, is supposed to be that's Mark's <laughs> dog. That's not his wife. So just you guys know that's. Oh no no that was the wife. <laughs> I kid, of course. <laughs> Sorry. Of course I kid. I don't yeah, I'm just bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> um, but but uh, what, what what ends up happening, what they're supposed to be doing uh, is take these people to, say, a supermarket yeah. and tell them, okay, you got five bucks in your pocket. You got to buy shampoo and bar of soap. The store brand is 99 cents. The suave brand is $1.49. And the fancy ass brand is $6.99. So how are you going to spend your money? That's what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. But what actually happened in real life is that you had staff that didn't give a shit and knew that the people they were with didn't really get that the staff's job in that scenario was to educate them. Mm-hmm. So they got this van full of people that's just very happy to not be in their group home. And the staff is like, hey, wow, I think I uh, I ran out of uh, Coca-Cola in my apartment. I'm going to go do some shopping and I'll bring these guys in with me. Yep. 
and then they and then they get back at the end of the day and, and write in their notes uh, today I assisted uh, Tim with his budgeting goal and they get to build a state for those services provided that's a, when I talk about vile corruption I observed in that that's like the canary in the coal mine example okay so those people didn't actually get a budgeting uh, education as per their semi-annual meeting and their declared goals and they didn't know and they didn't care they were they still had fun to them it was just a community outing but the state was billed for services that we paid for that those people were not provided with and that's the canary of the coal mine i think that leads us to how a situation like willowbrook uh could occur is that when you have people that aren't really aware of uh, some of the processes and procedures that are going on behind the scenes as far as how did I end up in this place? Why am I here? And what are these staff supposed to be doing for me? So if I fall short on my job, which is in customer service, people will complain about it because they know. They know what I'm supposed to be doing for them. But if my customers didn't know and somebody came up to me and, you know, asked me a question like, oh, can you tell me where this item is? And I said, no, fuck off. I'm busy. I'd get fired. But if you work with the population that doesn't realize that, hey, I'm not supposed to be spoken to that way. That person should that person should be fired. I'm going to go complain to the manager. But they don't know who the manager is. And they don't know that that person shouldn't be there. And so that's, that's uh, I think, just as far as laying the groundwork in. Because I think a lot of people hearing this story are going to wonder, you know, how on earth could, could this have happened? Aren't we better as a human race? And uh, the answer is no. Uh, it's an emphatic no. No, you're right. And and I wish when you know talking about Willowbrook, um, you know I wish people or 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 you know caretakers or counselors or whatever you want to call them, uh, I I wish in the story of Willowbrook we were talking about somebody who was taking you know doing travel training right and you know doing uh, their own shopping instead of right helping. Uh, John or Billy, right, get to their budget and go, I wish that's what we were talking about in this particular story, but it's not. What we are going to get into today is, is so much worse, is so much more. And I think the word really that you had just mentioned, um, is really the only one that, that really sums up or really is appropriate for this story, but it's vile. Uh, it's, it's vile and it's just, it's, it's the inhumanity in this particular story is just so unbelievable. And so, uh, but, it, you know, in my research coming across, you know, as I, you, like you had mentioned before, you and I, we watched, you know, the, the Geraldo expose on this with the 1972 story. I had watched it many times. In fact, I actually still show parts of it to my students in class when we talk about uh, mental health reform back in the 1800s with Dorothy and Dix. And, you know, as kind of like, uh, hey, we've still got work that we've got to do because, you know, we're talking about the 1840s and 1850s. And then I show them, right, this expose from 1972, and they're like, Jesus, like, what the hell? 
And it's like, yeah, man, we, we, you know, we've still got a long ways to go. We've come a long way. Today, where we are at today is certainly much better than where Dorothea Dix was at in the 1840s. And I, I mean, the fact that we have group homes and things like that, things have been done. However, uh, there is still, like you had mentioned, a, a, the margin for taking advantage and the margin for just not doing the right thing when you work in this field is still way too large. And, and I don't know if we'll ever, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the end of this, but let's jump into it. You know, in my research, I found, you know, as I was saying before we started recording, there was so much more I didn't know about World War that I, I now know that I kind of broke it up into, I don't know, my research, I look at, now when I look at Willowbrook, I look at it in three chapters. Uh, the first chapter I look at is, is pre-Willowbrook, not, I don't know, not pre-Willowbrook, but we'll say pre-Geraldo. Uh, 55, 56 to like 1971 is crazy. That is an insane story. Then obviously we've got the Geraldo in 72, talking about, right, the conditions and what was happening at Willowbrook. And then there's the after, uh, the after session, to the, the tail end of Willowbrook that we'll get into, uh, that I'll, I'll just simply call Cropsy, if that makes any sense. I don't know if you came across that in your research, uh, but it is like the, the perfect cherry on top for the absolute fuckery that is Willowbrook. So, uh, let's get into it. Did you, sorry, so let's say, let, where did your research start off? Did you catch anything about the apps, like the, the beginning of it when it first opens up? Did you, you come across that at all? Uh, well, I did. Um, I, I actually, uh, my research as far as uh, the groundwork, because, uh, you know, I think that's uh, kind of been our motif here is mm -hmm. uh, we don't just dive into the topic, but we talk about the circumstances. <laughs> that's how we always end up with these multi-parters yeah. because it ends up, you know. Context, uh, man. Context like, is everything. Exactly. Well, I mean, you can't not, right? I mean, yeah. um, I think in order for us to have any real understanding of the topic, you have to understand that, you know, um, uh, Willowbrook didn't spontaneously one day pop out of out of the ground. And that, and that was just a thing that the conditions that led up to it, um, which is where I started. Okay. And this is something, and I'm going to go off on a mini tangent here before I really dive into my Shoot, go. official research. But I, this whole, I, I hear a lot of it too, from my generation, you know, that, uh, or generation prior to mine that will like shit all over the millennials and Gen Z and like, well, or, you know, the baby boomers or before them, you had these people that referred to themselves as the, the greatest, greatest generation. generation. Yeah. And you and you look at how these people treated uh, developmentally disabled people and mentally ill people for, for that generation of people. It was, I don't know if encouraged is the right word, but it was certainly acceptable mm -hmm. if you had somebody in your family. Uh, that was developmentally disabled, they would lock them in the basement or in the yeah. attic. It was a source of uh, shame and embarrassment. It was embarrassment, it yeah. And that goes, back, kind of... that goes back decades. I mean, that goes, I mean, as far back as one can remember in history, at least in United States history, that's the way it was. You know, it was the same level, and not to go off on a, on a side tangent, but, you know, uh, unmarried pregnancy, same deal. Mm -hmm. Right. And, like, these people are seen as uh, lowered life forms. Yeah. Uh, 
in, in like less than human and we're treated it as such. And, and as you point out, you know, the unmarried pregnancy, you, you were shunned from your community. You didn't go to school. There was no MTV show that, you know, you got to be a celebrity, a, yeah. like teen mom. It was like, it, you know, it was this, this thing where it was totally socially acceptable to treat you like a piece of shit. Yeah. You moved out to the and barn and, and you were away from the sight of the entire society and community. That was it. Done. And nobody even talked right. about you. You were the unspoken exactly. individual. You, Rosemary Kennedy. Right. Which is, you know, you look back at, at, at the Kennedy family, which is this, you know, very heralded family in American history. And you look at Rosemary Kennedy. And if you're not familiar with the story of Rosemary Kennedy, look it up. Uh, you know, you look at lobotomies and things of that nature. And, you know, the experimentation. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it was this acceptable uh, discrimination. And, and just even worse, like you said, just treated as a second or a lower level, uh, which is. Right. You know, horrible. It's it's horrid. And especially, you know, you and I, like I said, we worked in this field. My mom worked in this field. I grew up literally in this field. Like, you you remember uh, BOCES back on Long Island? Of course, yeah. Uh, my mother worked at, at James E. Allen High School back in Western BOCES. And, and, I, you know, she worked at a high school. And so I literally grew up in a developmentally disabled classroom. You know, my mom took me to work. I went to the proms. I mean, multiple prom. Every year, I went to James E. Allen's prom, and it was like the greatest experience. For me. It was amazing. I literally grew up in this population, and so when we see as things, the, yeah. you know what I mean. Like when we, yes, I know you have a background as well, right? You have it's it's deeply ingrained in the both of us, and so when we see something like what happens at Willow Grove, uh, and I and I, and I think that's a really good reason why that you decided this one when you knew it was going to be just me and you this week because this is just a very personal. You know, story for the two of us, uh, in which again it is our origin story. We met probably what about just about twenty years ago, working yeah. at this particular agency, and, and we've been friends for twenty years since. And this was right the 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 moment where we walked in. Uh, you we walked into each other's lives, right? And here we are, twenty years later, now doing a podcast about this, which is pretty fucking cool. You know, yeah. And uh, and it's yeah, true. you know, it's it's you know for for us on a personal level. And it, Mark and I both knew a couple of uh, gentlemen that were patients at Willowbrook when we yeah, were working yeah. together. You know? In fact, the, uh, one of them, uh, and of course, no, no names can be mentioned, of uh, but uh, one of them would roll into some of these agency events. They would have like an annual uh, formal dance or um, Broadway shows in the city. One of the gentlemen that uh, was... Uh, a patient at Willowbrook successfully uh, won a big settlement and used to roll into the the agency's events, whether they would uh, be doing a field trip in the city or have their annual formal dance. He would roll in a limo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that, that, that was uh, the Willowbrook money. And I think that, um, you know, what you bring up as far as like, really growing up in that classroom. For me, my mother uh, was a bus driver. Um, she drove a, a minibus okay. um, for special ed- special education students. And at this time, as we're going back to the, the late 70s, um, the bus wasn't kept at, uh, at the bus yard. It, it was parked in our driveway. It was at your house, yeah. With big-ass oil stains in my, in my driveway forever as a result. <laughs> but... Um, so what would happen was that my mother would pick me up from daycare 
on her route on the bus. And one by one, you know, would pick up all of the students. Mm. She dropped me off at dropped me off at daycare. All right. And so I knew every one of them on the bus because at, she would pick me up from daycare and on the route home, which was routed in the order from farthest from our house to closest to our house before actually just parking yeah. the bus. Of course. At our I mean, house. Was, yeah. So I'm not even in like real school at this point. This is my uh, daycare center. So I, I probably got to be like uh, uh, around four years old. About, yeah, four or five. First, you know, first meeting this uh, population. And they weren't separated from me, which I think is a big thing when most people meet individuals uh, with any kind of developmental uh, disability or um, that are cognitively different from them. It's usually in a setting where these people are separate yeah. from them. Right. They ride on the big bus and these people ride on the mini bus. And these people are on this wing of the school and these kids are on this wing of the school. Like everything is is kind of separated away and, and kids nature tend to make fun of things. Mm -hmm. I know I, I guess for you and me, I, there was no difference. Like no. when you're a kid, you want to talk to the other kid about what was on the Muppet show last night. Yep. And these were the kids that surrounded me and they knew the Muppets as well as I knew the Muppets. And we had great conversation uh, about that stuff. There, there was never any indication to me that these people were different from me in any way. Yeah. And uh, so that really normalized it. And I think for people that don't have that experience, it's a lot more easy to marginalize these people that have always been presented to you as something separate from you mm -hmm. or an oddity from you yeah you know an oddity right. you know back in the day a sideshow that would be you know the traveling sideshows and things like that and where for you and i you know luckily we had a much different upbringing and i think that uh we're, we're very fortunate to have had that you know um all right Those so my first friends yeah i i agree 100 percent. all right so let's roll into it let's do it so all right. All right. Well, what do you got to start a huff? Let's go. So I went back to uh, going back to California, um, which was where at the state level. It w is where this really first started uh, policy wise. OK. And. Uh, well, I think this should have been mentioned uh, at, at the start of the show, but um, we can't go the the episode without mentioning. Um, the, the horrific shooting uh, in Texas, which I believe yeah. uh, connects that, that that's the other thing, you know, with uh, with this particular episode is, is seeing how many of our problems that we have today all plant their roots at, at the same place. It's it doesn't seem initially related, but you know, that link will, I think, be very clear to people as we go on. But there was a shift in policy in California to uh, defund the, the state mental institutions and move these people out into uh, private group homes, kind of to privatize this whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and when you get to, say, 1967, I believe, is the year that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, becomes the governor. 
mm-hmm. uh, in this state. And that's a huge part of, of that agenda is privatization, getting the government out of business. And so this push to shut down the state hospitals, uh, the state mental hospitals, I should say, and to displace these people and, and put them in these other environments was kind of like an experiment in California that started in the 50s. Um, and when, by the time Reagan became the governor, uh, which again, I believe 67, uh, more than half of the state hospital uh, patients had been deinstitutionalized. Um, and at, after that, uh, California passed a law, it was called uh, the Lanterman uh, Petrus Act, or Petrus Short Act, I believe. And it uh, virtually ab- abolished, totally got rid of uh, hospitalizing people involuntarily, mm. unless it was a, an incredibly extreme case. Um, so we can see how this, how this policy, how these policies might uh, be not the greatest ideas uh, yeah. in the world. And um, so you get these people out, they, they end up in uh, group homes, like uh, the ones that uh, you and I uh, had worked at, you know, boarding homes, adult care homes, mm-hmm. um, just getting them out of these hospitals, which were state funded. Yeah. But in the hospitals, these people were provided with medication and, and services and staff and oversight. Um, taxpayers are, want to see a return on their investment. And if people aren't being cared for properly, then politicians, you know, are going to get voted out. Yeah. But now you don't, now you don't have that oversight anymore. Now it's just like, we don't, we don't really have a viable uh, alternative plan, mm-hmm. but let's, let's just get these people out of these hospitals. Yeah. Uh, so the state's not, you know, paying for it. And, Fast forward a few years when Reagan becomes the president and that model in California, which was an abysmal failure in all aspects, except, again, financially was the motive not to take care of these people, not to address their mental health needs or to provide them with the services that they need to either maintain, not get worse. Mm -hmm. Um, he applies the same thing uh, nationally yep. to absolutely disastrous results. So now you have people, uh, when I talk about it's kind of like a hydra, this thing just spreads out into all these other problems that uh, we don't immediately draw that line back to that. But when you look at the explosion in homelessness, for example. Yep. Especially in the uh, late many, 80s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And many, many of these people previously would have been in a state-funded yep. state mental hospital. hospital. Um, so you take all these people and you just throw them out into the world. You have these group homes, which, yeah, it sounds great in theory. Yeah. But in practice, I mean... Do you remember what, when you and I applied for jobs at uh, an agency that shall not be named yeah. um, f- for legal purposes? Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I remember uh, seeing the ad in the paper for a $1,000 sign-on bonus. Huh. Now, who, 
who are you going to uh, appeal Attract to? Attract to, yeah, exactly. And that's it, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, these are people that are going through the want ads, maybe looking for a job as a custodian or, you know, in something. They're not people that are like, I really want to help people, you know, from, well, exactly. from an altruistic perspective. Especially if, if you're like, offering... You're up at a thousand dollar sign on bonus, then obviously, right? The people that you're attracting are the people, and it's not anything wrong with it, but the people that are looking for a job, right, to make money. And this, you know, as you mentioned, this is not this is not the job for for somebody who just needs to pay bills. You know what I mean? Like you've exactly. got to have right. something within you that wants to help another human being. And uh, and that's right. it, you know that I mean, is you, you you can mow lawns, you you can do landscaping, you can you can do anything, any other job, literally any other job. And it, I mean, if I make a mistake on my job, uh, a jug of apple juice uh, gets dropped on the floor. Somebody has to mop it up and problem solve in two minutes. Yeah. Who gives a fuck? You know, but if your job is to care for human beings that legit need assistance uh, as far as uh, self-care, things that they can't do for themselves. Uh, like having to assist somebody in a uh, transfer from yeah. a wheelchair to a toilet bowl. That's mm-hmm. an important job. Or out of so, the shower yeah. into their, their chair. You know, absolutely. Right. There's danger involved in there. Like literal, like, yeah, there is. You're, you, you, you use the, the, the example of dropping a jug of, our, of, of apple juice. You, you know, in, in our line of work, it was a human being that you dropped. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, uh, again, you and I had a, a co-worker that also shall not be named, uh, who was an athlete uh, training uh, for mm-hmm. the Olympics. For the Olympics, yeah. And, and if one of our guys needed to go to the bathroom, he, he would honk a horn because he uh, Couldn't wasn't able to call out. And he was in a wheelchair and could not get from his bed to his wheelchair to the bathroom without a staff picking him up and putting yep. him there. And so uh, our uh, very competent co-worker, uh, who last I checked was a NYPD, um, would sleep on the couch. <laughs> we were not allowed to sleep on the job. Nope. And if that, ho- if that horn honked before he was ready to wake up... He ignored it. He ignored it, or would yell at the, at the gentleman, I'm not getting up yet. You have to train, yeah. you know, and that's the kind of a person that you uh, attract track, yeah. with your thousand dollar sign on bonus. And we we weren't paid like people who were providing other human beings with services. We were paid yeah, totally. like, you know, we were barely paid. <laughs> yeah, well, like, there was um, there was no difference in pay between that and working at a deli, you know, and right. and, and slice of meat and, you know, and throwing it off. Yeah, no, I I agree. You know, um, and yes. Go ahead. So that's 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 the disconnect that I think a lot of people have that look at this. And when I'm talking about, well, I shouldn't say people. I'm talking about politicians. So yeah. it's a uh, one step lower uh, on the evolutionary chain, uh, certainly as far as uh, morals, <laughs> ethics, and and conscience goes. But when they're talking about this as purely a budgetary issue, um. You're not acknowledging something like that. Like, oh, well, they'll get better care in a group home because it's a better, uh, you know, you know, ratio with the staff. 
And it's like, well, it's also a quality versus quantity thing. Exactly. And when you when you put the we, the agency that we worked for was not a nonprofit. It was a not not for, for profit. profit. Yeah. So four or three big. Uh, so basically, what it means is hire a really good accountant, and you can get away with whatever the fuck you want. Um, that's essentially what a not for profit uh, means. That if you're if you're crafty enough uh, in the wording and how you pre- present certain numbers, uh, you can you can function basically as a normal business while calling yourself uh, a not for profit. Yeah. And it, it sounds it, much it better really, than public eye. It does, uh, and you know, from a, an altruism standpoint, absolutely. Yeah. When it in re- in reality, it's it's just a way to justify some of the things. Uh, that they get away with in a really deceptive way. The agency I went to after the one that we were at, I got assigned to this uh, apartment with two gentlemen who lived there. And when my supervisor was uh, training me, she told me straight up, she's like, this program is funded by a government grant based on uh, the premise that uh, eventually these two individuals won't need any services at all anymore that they'll be able um after we you know educate them in in the areas in which they need help that they will be able to live on their own and i was like oh wow that's great and then she she legit says to me uh that's never actually gonna happen these guys will never be able to do that but you know we don't say that because then we won't get the grant anymore and i was like wow you know, I don't use this. I don't use the c word often. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to use it here, in case there are any kids listening. Yeah, but jo- I'll tell you, it's it's, it's jo- in my brain right now. It's Joe's <laughs> word. Joe, if Joe was here, he would definitely know for sure. Yeah. All right. So yeah, uh, let's let's get to 1947. Did you read up on 194? Well, 1947 is the year that it opens. All right, you familiar with that? When Willowbrook actually? Yeah, opens. yeah, yeah. Yes. So yes. it opens up after World War II. It comes up on 375 acres of land in Staten Island, New York. And if you are a New Yorker out there listening, Staten Island's not really New York. I don't give a shit what anybody says. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's after World War II, so there's a lot of speculation as to what this building is going to be. Is it going to be... What's it going to do? Who is it going to house? Uh, you know, there was questions whether or not it was going to house disabled veterans, right, from the Second World War. And really, the last guy that has the say about it is this dude, Thomas Dewey, who is the governor of New York at the time. He's got a plan, and essentially, he's got the final word. So, in his own words, this is what Dewey argues, and I quote, uh, he's talking about the thousands of children in the state who were, and as I quote, he would, you know, as I quote him, mentally and physically defective and feeble-minded, who never can become members of society and who needed to be cared for with a high degree of tenderness and affection. And I love, like, how he comes at this this really nice part at the end, where we've got to, you know, uh, <laughs> love, right, and show tenderness and affection, but it starts off with defective and feeble-minded who can never be a part of society. You, you know what I mean? So, like, right there, that goes to exactly what you were saying. This mind, this mind frame, this view of these individuals that were were put into these institutions, you know, and and this is 
and it's kind of like what you were saying before with the with the group homes where it should be like you know you know good oversight and things like that supervision but what happens when you've got a state run hospital that has no oversight or supervision and so no matter where you put these individuals if the right people aren't there advocating and standing up and making sure that they're getting the care they need it doesn't matter if you got six people in a group home or 4,000 people in a hospital, if the right people aren't there, right, doing the right thing, then, you know, vile things are going to happen, really, Ben, it's the only thing I can think of, you know? And so Dewey, he's right about the number of kids that need services, right? And he's right about the fact that they need a high degree of tenderness and affection. Uh, unfortunately, that's never realized. In fact, it's the complete opposite of, of what takes place in Willowbrook. And so the, the U-shaped building, uh, there's, there's a couple of different buildings on the sprawling campus. They're going to open up in 47 and they, they name it the Willowbrook State School. Uh, the, originally it's supposed to open with 20 patients and they were going to be all shipped in from upstate New York. Uh, and this is what, that's 47. So by 55, you got about 4,000 people. Um, which is, you know, uh, uh, just a, a massive uptick, right? And the amount of people. And I believe, if I'm not wrong, uh, I think it was around 4,000 was uh, the capacity. I, I think that was the actual... Mm. Did, did you come across any, uh, any numbers as far as what the capacity was supposed to be? Uh, full capacity, yes, was uh, 4,000. 4,000, right? So 55, it hits that. Um, and then you start to get outbreaks, uh, which is a first sign that there is not cleanliness there. Right. This, if you started to get these outbreaks, especially with things like hepatitis, uh, which is going to spread viciously and fast, and you get measles that are going to outbreak in 1960, uh, that you, right then there, you, you, you're seeing that the sanitary conditions are not good. You know, I mean, when sanitary conditions are bad, well, then there, you have rampant disease that, that runs through. Obviously, people can get sick, but I mean, if you're really not taking care to sanitize an area, specifically this, and if you remember, Hepatitis was a really big thing when you and I were working in this field. The hepatitis, you know, they were, that was a big thing. Like everybody made a big deal of hepatitis, you know, and we always yeah. had to make sure we were gloved up and you, all that stuff, you know. We had to, we had to get tested. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a big thing, um, specifically in that field. Also, obviously, sexual and physical abuse uh, at the hands of fellow patients, right, and employees is 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 about as common as this, as the disease. So you, it's just, I mean, you can tell just between, just, just from that little portion right there, this place is a hell. You've got patients that are just wandering corridors and rooms, often naked, smeared with their own feces, drenched in urine, feces covering the walls everywhere you go, lights not on or broken, water not broken. I believe I read too that in every bathroom, you had a, on average one to two broken toilets in every bathroom that had a, a set of, you know, uh, four or five toilets in there. Um, and about and about 1969, where, as, as we had mentioned before, you got a, a capacity of 4,000, 69, they reached 6,200 patients. That's insane for a capacity of 4,000. There is no... How do you that even... You can't. I mean, overcrowding like that is going to produce such horrible effects, right? The effects of overcrowding on that type of level. And not only is it just completely overcrowded, but it is underfunded. 
and you do not have the staffing that is necessary. I believe in the ni- 1969, the recommendation for, uh, for, um, staffing was there was three shifts. Shift one was supposed to be a one to five ratio, one staff member for every five patients. Shift two was supposed to be a one to ten ratio, and shift three was supposed to be a one to fifteen. Obviously, shift three, they're sleeping. So you can have one patient or one staff member tend to more people while they're sleeping because they're sleeping, right? You're looking at 1969 on about a 1 to 50 ratio throughout the day, the entire day. Now, Mark, you and I worked in this field. Imagine you and I had to work. We had to, we had to advocate or watch over 50, you know, patients, consumers, whatever you want to call them, individuals, right? 50 individuals. That's... You can't do that. You can't. There's no. There's no it's. I mean, it, it. It's not. It's not even. I mean, it, it, it's first off physically impossible. Mm-hmm. Time wise, it, it's no. totally impossible. No. It's not. A, it's not a quick process to transfer somebody from a wheelchair uh, to a bathroom. Yeah. Um. It's. It, it's time consuming, and if if you're understaffed and don't have enough people to do that. Uh, it's an impossible thing to do, no. and it's not like it's not like you can write up a, a schedule. You don't know when somebody's gonna have to go to the bathroom. No. And if four if if four of them all come up to you and tell you they got to go at the same time, and that there are only two bathrooms in the building, yeah. Um, and 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 most of the a lot of the toilets are broken. You're, you're screwed. There's no way. And exactly. Then you want to talk about handing out meds, handing out food. Uh, I mean, just whatever it is. The the point is, is when you are you are at the degree of uh, of, of helping somebody out, like you are in this field, rushing through because you have fifty other people to take care of is not conducive to literally taking care of anybody. It's just not. It just you can't do it. And at this point, I mean, I can't. I, I wasn't there, but I would imagine that they obviously the staff members knew we can't do this. So fuck it. Why even try? Yeah, and so they would just put all of these people in in a room together, uh, and you would just have them all basically huddled Huddle around, yeah, like sc- either screaming in pain or um, some of them totally buck naked mm-hmm. and just covered in their own human waste, and that's what they were standing in. And it was easier for the staff to pack them all into one room. Yes. And just so you just had to uh, to watch that one room. I, I found a really uh, good quote here, ironically enough, from uh, Robert Kennedy, not to be confused with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, yeah. Conspiracy. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, there. We won't mention but, his uh, name. So, yeah, this uh, it said the first the American public heard of the horrors of Willowbrook was from a speech made by a promising young politician. Uh, speaking of systemic failures in mental health care, uh, oh, and I do want to cite this as an article uh, that I had read on uh, Timeline.com mm-hmm. so that I am not uh, plagiarizing or taking in, uh, any undue credit here. But uh, speaking of systemic failures in mental health care, Robert Kennedy said, uh, quote, um, I'm not going to say the R word. Here, yeah, no, uh, I understand. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it is in the quote. And uh, just uh, for the listeners, um, this has nothing at all to do with political correctness. I 
could give a fuck about being politically correct. But I do continue to this day work uh, with this population and in the capacity uh, as an advocate. I would never disrespect them by uh, saying this, what has come uh, to be known in that community as a slur. So I'm going to substitute it here, and it's not to appease anybody for the sake of being politically correct. That's not uh, who I am. Those aren't my motivations. Um, I'm not uh, being censored. I, I am intentionally uh, being considerate to a population uh, about whom I care deeply. So uh, this is a quote from Robert Kennedy, uh, said, I visited the state institutions for the mentally are, and I think particularly at Willowbrook, we have a situation that borders on a snake pit. A snake pit. And when I read, I read that, I immediately uh, thought of the scene in uh, Indi Indiana Jones, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and just... Because when yep. we watched the Willowbrook special, that's what it was that's, like. It, that's was, that's the that's that's the description. Mm -hmm. And the, the, these snakes it. just crawling all over each other. Yes. And they, they, there was not, and uh, yeah. So I, I just wanted to throw that quote. And I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. And and if do you mind if I finish that quote right there, uh, and that the just. The children live in filth that many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because of the lack of attention, lack of imagination, lack of adequate manpower. There is very little future for these children. For those who are in these institutions, both need a tremendous overhauling. I'm not saying that those who are the attendants there or who run the institutions are at fault. I think that all of us are at fault, and I think it's just long overdue that something be done about it. And you're right. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, he really kind of calls them out. but. I'd like to go a little bit, uh, well, we're, we're in that time period, 65. Uh, but can, let me, let me, before we get to Geraldo, let me bring up a woman. Uh, this is from an article I read in Forbes. And so this is, uh, this is from a woman named Diane McCourt. You mind if I go here real quick? Please. Okay. So Diane McCourt, she's a mother. She's desperate to find, uh, an institution. Now remember, this is, uh, what, 19, right? It's about the same time. So it's about 65. And uh, she she wants to find an institution that would serve her her severely autistic uh, or ten year old daughter Nina who suffers from severe autism. And and I quote, she says, "I was just desperate. I think I was having a breakdown because I was just trying to take care of everything." So she goes to Willowbrook and they hand her a waiver, uh, which read, and I have the uh, the waiver right here. Let me read this waiver to you. So this is a, a young mother. Who, if anybody has ever looked, had a family member who suffer, you know, suffers for autism or has autism, it's hard, and it's hard to know what to do with that is right. So she's trying to find a place that is going to help her. And here is the the waiver that she is given. Uh, it's there's some some stuff that is uh, uh redacted. So it says, "Dear," and I would imagine it would be parent or something of that nature. <clears throat> and it states, hepatitis is an illness characterized by abdominal symptoms, fever, jaundice, and general malaise. It is more severe in adults than in children. It is caused by a virus spread from person to person. In cooperation with the pediatric staff of New York University Bellevue Medical Center, we are studying the possibility of preventing epidemics of hepatitis on a new principle. 
virus is introduced and gamma globulin given later to some, so that either no attack or only a mild attack of hepatitis is expected to follow. This may give the child immunity against the disease for life. We should like to give your child, and they have a space there for the children's child's name, this new form of prevention with the hope that it will afford protection. Permission form is enclosed for your consideration. If you wish to have your child given the benefit of this new preventative, will you so signify by signing the form, having it witnessed, and returning it to me at your earliest convenience? Very truly yours, H. H. Berman, M.D., Director. So she is given, first off, right now, the waiting line at Willowbrook at this point is massive. You're not going to get somebody in there for a very, very long time. And so they hand her this. Then she signs it, and she states, I had no choice. I had tried so many different places and so many arrangements that they didn't work out, so I went along with it. Well, her daughter, Nina, she becomes one of the 50 mentally disabled children ages 5 to 10 under the care of Dr. Saul Krugman, or Krugman, I don't know how to pronounce his name, a respected pediatrician from New York who wanted to determine if there were multiple strains of hepatitis and whether a vaccine could be created to protect against the disease. So what we have here from 55 to 1970 is children being injected with hepatitis Children with developmental disabilities between the ages of 5 and 10 are being injected with hepatitis or, and I don't mean to get uh, discussing at this point, but what this is, I, I, this is just on another level, or they are made to drink chocolate milk that is mixed with feces from other infected children in order to easily enter the virus into their body. So Willowbrook, even before the Geraldo expose from 55 to 70, is a human testing ground for hepatitis uh, vaccines and experimental hepatitis uh, treatment. Um, I mean, it's unfucking believable Now, that's not uncommon, though. We gotta understand, Edward Jenner, the guy that's credited with the smallpox, pax, uh, smallpox vaccine, his first te- test subject was an eight-year-old boy who he injected with pus from an open smallpox sore from somebody else in the late 1790s, early 1800s. So that kind of goes along with that idea, right, that we were speaking about before, this kind of, a, for lack of a better word, a, a strain, right? This is DNA of how individuals like this are treated, or children in general. But, I mean, this... The, hepa- the Willowbrook hepatitis experiments are now famously known as one of the most unethical vaccine experiments or human experiments in American history. I mean, it's, um, it's unbelievable. The thing that I found unbelievable um, was that this this guy was defended uh, and held in high regard. And so I just I want to take this segment of the show to because he seems to have been exonerated even up to the day that he died insisted this dr krugman that he did nothing yes. wrong and and that in fact uh, this led to the discovery of um was it uh, uh gamma globulin as mm-hmm. the hepatitis treatment and that uh you know we wouldn't have uh you know made this discoveries uh which is bullshit i just want to anyway. take 
Right. This this segment of the show uh, is going to be Krugman is a fucking cunt who should be rotting in hell. And if I ever find myself at the cemetery where he's buried, I'm going to take a shit on his grave. Yeah. Um, the fact that uh, it was the New England Journal of Medicine. And they published uh, his articles, multiple of them. And not only that, but uh, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine attacks um i believe it was uh the reporter um it was either a reporter or an advocate for the population who uh oh you know what i'm sorry that's not what it was another uh doctor um named uh dr stephen goldby and his quote was to give potentially dangerous infected material particularly those who are mentally are with or without parental consent, when no benefit to the child could conceivably result. Yeah. And so in response to this, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine uh, calls uh, the quote that he uh, has in relation to this Dr. Stephen Golby, who uh, called out Krugman as indefensible, uh, called... Uh, Dr. Stephen Golby, a zealot, blind to the fact that his one-track efforts to protect the rights of the individual are in fact depriving that individual of his right to good medical care. Wow. To good medical good care. Me- because so they, we'll, we're treating him, we're treating yeah. him for the hepatitis. He's getting the good medical care. And, and, and he probably would have got, he would have got it anyway since we had him in this uh, room. You know, this room full of uh, people covered in shit. And that was their literal, that was their literal, uh, that was literally what, how they defended themselves. They said, well, look, I mean, hepatitis is spreading all over the place. They're probably going to get it anyway. So we might as well just, you know, experiment on them while they're here. And, in the court and, I mean, cases, it, that was their defense when they went to the court. And it, I mean, it's <laughs> fucking mind boggling. It's on the greatest generation. Oh, the greatest generation. My God. But let's, but let's let's talk shit about the millennials because you know they eat avocado toast, <laughs> which is so, which is so much worse. <laughs> it's you know those fucking horrible people. Well, look, avocado I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be honest yeah. with you though, man. I'm not a big fan of millennials either. But yeah, this is a totally different situation. You're absolutely right. But this motherfucker, but this motherfucker Krugman. He actually, after this is all done, after he's done at Will- his work is done at Willowbrook, he becomes the president of the American Pediatric Society. This man is, like you had said, he's heralded and he's rewarded for what he did. And actually today, his son is a really like high-powered, and I don't know if he's the president of the American Pediatric Society, but it is, it is something as absurd as that his son is the head of, and his son to this day still, and I guess, look, maybe it's father and son, but he defends what his father did. I mean, he's he's not even able to turn around and say, look, man, my father was a little misguided, yada, yada. No, he still defends dad. But what dad doesn't tell you about is there were multiple other studies back in 1969 that were happening and around the same stage of development as Krugman was in his uh in his vaccine you know his vaccine development now yes did krugman's research help to get to this to, to you know the vaccines it did however what they the point is is that had krugman it wasn't inevitable it, in other words it was sort of inevitable at this time because had krugman not been doing it 
there were two or three other studies who were around the same area of research who were not testing on human beings, who were testing scientifically in labs using cells, using, you know, other forms of vaccine, you know, vaccine testing that weren't testing it on human beings and watching them suffer, you know? Uh, yeah. And so much so... It's true. And, it's, and this guy's also credited, um, not just for uh, hepatitis, but uh, again, citing a, that Timeline.com article again that uh, it said upon his death, he was lauded for his essential work on not only hepatitis, but the rubella and measles vaccines. The MMR, yeah. Uh, yeah, measles, uh, the MMR, uh, uh, um, measles, mumps, and rubella. Yeah. And well, uh, ironically enough, another uh, disease that was rampant uh, in Willowbrook. And I think um, I just want to interject here um, that even though this episode is about Willowbrook, um, the reason that we know about Willowbrook is uh, because of the Geraldo expose, um, which was made because uh, I believe it was a 21 year old. Oh, no. I'm sorry, what, 21-year-old, uh, there was a 21-year-old patient in the hospital that Geraldo had interviewed who was of high cognitive function. Bernard Carabello. Um, Bernard Carabello. Cerebral palsy he had. Yes. So, so he had CP, but going back to the way that Geraldo got in there in the first place was, I believe, a disgruntled worker. Dr. Michael Wilkins. And gave uh, Geraldo a key. He, yep. Build it, uh, he snuck him and, into Building 6 with a cameraman. Yep. Uh, so we single out Willowbrook because that was the one that really blew the top off. And mm -hmm. after the expose aired, so whatever you you think uh, about Geraldo Rivera as a man or as a pundit, sensationalist or whatever, um, this expose did blow the lid off of this oh, thing. Yeah. There were There were many, many, many other facilities that were likely just as bad, if not worse, than Willowbrook that existed at this time. Yep. This wasn't like a one, uh, this wasn't a unicorn here, uh, no. or an outlier. And Well, the this, thing was, again, well, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I know Willowbrook was the largest. It was the largest in the United States. So this was the biggest target that there was at this point. So if mm -hmm. in the largest uh, institution in the United States, this is happening. You can damn well count on the fact that this is happening in those mid-level and those lower ones that are out of the focus completely and tucked away somewhere else. You know, um, and if we're looking at some of the numbers here, sixty uh, percent of the patients at Willowbrook were not toilet trained, and sixty-four percent were incapable of feeding themselves. You know, and and at the time that Geraldo gets there, they have. 5,400 patients, which is 1,400. They're, they're overcrowded by 1,400 people, you know. And uh, and so, you know, I have a couple of quotes from Bernard Carabello, um, you know, the individual, like you had mentioned, 21-year-old that had uh, that had CP. Uh, he was there for 18 years. Intellect is sharp, right? However, speaking and moving as quickly as others definitely suffered. He had difficulty doing that. However, he was eloquently able to explain, like, what he saw. Uh, he says, and I quote, I got beaten with sticks, belt buckles. I got my head kicked into a wall by the staff. Most of the kids sat in the day room naked, no clothes on. There was a lot of sexual abuse going on from staff and residents also. Uh, and, you know, for all of this guy, you know, it, there is a good ending for Carabella, thank God. 
Um, 2000, as of 2017, Carabello was in his late 60s and he, he was retired from his job as a state employee uh, in Manhattan. And so Carabello gets out, thank God, and is able to work a job. And then in 2017, he retires. However, the trauma that this man witnessed, I mean, he's literally stuck in a body. His intellect is there. I mean, it's all there. Cognitively, it's there. He's just stuck in a body, for lack of a better term, just that doesn't work. And he can't get out. And he's abused for 18 years. He's 21 years old at this point. However, but the point is he's stuck in a body that doesn't work. And he's, you know, again, cast off by society. You know, with, 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 you know, cerebral palsy. It's different. It's not a cognitive issue. It is a physical issue that confines somebody to a wheelchair, but cognitively in their mind, it's there. It's together. Yeah, it's called locked in, a locked in syndrome yeah. is what they that's, refer that's to. That's literally what it is. You're locked yeah. into a body. And that, that's like, that's the shit horror movies are, are made from. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so there's going to be lawsuits that are going to be put forward. There's going to be, uh, the parents are going to, uh, they're going to sue on multiple violations, confining residents, Failing to release, failing to release residents eligible for release. So people who should have gotten out of Willowbrook were kept longer. Um, failing to conduct periodic evaluations, assess progress, right? Refine goals. Exactly what you were saying we talked about before. Failing to provide habilitation, not providing adequate educational programs, services like speech, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Straight up overcrowding, lack of privacy, failure to provide protection for theft, personal property, assault, or injury, inadequate clothing, meals, facilities, including toilets, confining residents to beds or chairs or to solitude, <clears throat> lack of compensation for work performed, inadequate medical facilities, understaffing, and incompetence in professional staff. And this is going to be uh, this is going to be a a a, a massive. Lawsuit that is going to go. They're going to sue on multiple levels. It's going to go to the Eastern, Eastern District of New York, and they are going to win. But they're actually not going to win on the two uh, constitutional amendments that they kind of sued on. But they are going to win, and they are going to be ordered to do a shit ton of cleaning up uh, at Willowbrook by uh, I believe his name is Judge Oren D. Judd. He is going to find in favor of the parents, and he's going to essentially order. Willowbrook to clean its shit up. However, uh, it, all, all accounts point to that I had read. Accounts said, yeah, they don't really, you know, they don't really clean their shit up. It's not something that they're really, uh, you know, too keen on doing. Uh, and in 1987, it closes down. Thankfully, you know, finally. Interestingly enough, Mark, who was the president in 1987? <laughs> oh, would that be Reagan? That would be Ronald Reagan, right? The the irony is not yes. lost uh, on on that one, you know. Um, and 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 so it, it's just this entire thing. I mean, really, you know, from 1950 to 1970, 71, they're doing these un inhumane experiments or human experimentation with um with hepatitis on children, and then the entire time there is just this unbelievable amount of of abuse, physical, mental, emotional, sexual happenings to these people and just this overcrowded facility of disease and just filth, 
and it's just it's not if you guys have not seen it uh i, I it's called the the expose i believe is something i think it's called the last disgrace is that what it's called or the final disgrace with with um Geraldo rivera if you if you go to youtube and you type in Geraldo rivera um willowbrook it'll come up if you want I, i'm not just it's, just on that topic then i i have to point out another uh profound irony of the year 1987 uh, was also the the year that uh, a young to- uh, talk show host uh, premiered uh, his talk show, uh, and it was called Geraldo. Geraldo. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. Mark, that's the end of chapter two as far as Willowbrook goes. Do you have anything you want to add in there? Anything that I, that we did we gloss over? Anything else that you want to point out or you'd like to put the, uh, the, the microscope on? I... I definitely want to acknowledge uh, how this is still uh, connected to many of the issues that we face today. This isn't something that we look at. Again, this was how it was presented to us when we got hired in the field serving the uh, developmentally disabled uh, or cognitively compromised uh, communities that they showed it to us like, hey, look how great we are. Yeah. Look at how, how terrible these people used to be. And we're doing such a great job. But it's like, again, with the canary in the coal mine, you put the canary in the coal mine, there's enough poison in the air to kill the canary. Even, you know, that's when you know to bring the humans up. Yeah, it won't kill them yet. It, it, it's just a smaller, more diluted version. And so that's basically what you had. The... The mentality that led to those conditions never went away. Uh, it was a result of seeing this population as not uh, being worthy yeah. of the care or the basic uh, human dignity that we are all uh, entitled to. That I'm talking about the basic minimum. There's there's a minimum level of respect I give to every single person that I meet until they give me a reason not to. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's just the default, like here, this is your ration. Everybody gets this. If you're cool, of course, you're going to get more. If you're a douche, you know, it's probably going to go down. But you're going to get this much. And this bare minimum base level of human dignity and respect and thinking that, well, if I don't provide them with this, they don't aren't going to know who to complain to, or even if they should complain, if that they have a right to complain. They don't know that I'm supposed to be educating them about budget. They're just happy to be out of the house. So, hey, I made people happy today. I'm a good guy. No, you're a douche who exploited people. Yeah. And, and that that's all it is. You look at the homelessness issue. You look at the gun issue. When they always want to punt that football and say, oh, we're not going to reform gun laws. This isn't a gun problem. It's a mental health problem. Oh, yeah. And I'll say, oh, really? Okay, great. Um, so uh, what are we going to do about that mental health problem? Mm-hmm. Oh, thoughts and prayers? Oh, okay, so that's well, what I thought. You know, okay, you know you're not going to do You know what it is? Is it's, 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 You're exactly right. It's not a gun problem. It's a mental health problem. So let's pass, you know, look, let's pass gun reform. That's not a gun thing. It's a mental health thing. All right, great. So let's pass universal health care so everybody who has issues can go seek the proper treatment that they need. No, 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 can't do that. That's uh, that's socialism, you know. And and then they, they, they fucking stonewall it on every possible avenue of actually, <laughs> you know what I mean? You actually open the door for them. 
uh, to then, you know, back up what it is that they're going to say, and they find another way to fucking stonewall. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and you know, all of the arguments that um, are made against universal health care don't necessarily apply to a population that might not be aware mm-hmm. of the exact care that they need or that, you know, care is a therapy is available, yeah. whether it be in the form of medication or, or seeing somebody. Absolutely. You look at the the conflict between um with police and the, the Black Lives Matter protests that have occurred and the whole like um, straw man fallacy of the defund the police mm-hmm. as if it's supposed to be getting that the defund the police connects directly to what we're talking about today. It's not about getting rid of police. No. It's or, about uh, demilitarizing you know, your police and you don't need to spend money about, on the right. fucking tanks uh, and your anti, you know, aircraft assault weapons. You can you can fund a mental health uh, uh, portion uh, that could come in and help individuals. Well, there's certainly that, but there's also the idea that when somebody's having a mental a mental health crisis, that that's not the same as a criminal, mm-hmm. and that it shouldn't be a police officer showing up with a. Gun well, that's what I'm saying. Instead of to, you to talk that person down, you, yeah, you take that, that funding you can, you and you can get you bring it into somebody who can actually who 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 at this moment in time is not employed. You know, I mean, there is no position right. for that. You create those positions, and you know how you create those positions. You don't buy fucking tanks for your local fucking police force. Yeah, that's how you. It's that's true, how you it, defund the police. And again, you know what? That they'll always say that, like with the gun thing. You know, well, that this was a crazy person. You know, most people who own guns are very responsible. Which, yeah, but um, at the same time. We're not putting any measures in place mm. to keep the guns out of these people's hands. Yeah. So when they say, well, if you take all the guns away, then only the criminals will own guns. And that's not uh, really if a shooter is mentally ill, you're equating that person with just an evil yes. person who wants to shoot people versus, say, somebody who has a legit condition like paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah. Uh, and is hearing voices that are commanding them to do this. That mm-hmm. one, one of these people is just trying to live out his Call of Duty fantasy. Yes. Uh, and the and the other one legit can't help it with unless he get he has access to therapies that are out there. Exactly. And that person, you can keep a gun out of that person's hand with laws. Yep. And that's that's the point. that's that's it's not the same as a criminal. No. It's not the same. It, it's a mentally ill person. It's an illness that a you can try and treat it, or if you had a facility such as a mental hospital, uh, as used to be. The writing was on the wall that this was a failure in California long before uh, it was applied nationally. Yeah, and that um, you know, I guess it just comes down for me to the classic cliche of like a rising, uh, the high tide rises all ships. I know I'm probably butchering the quote or whatever, but um, we got to take care of our people Mm -hmm. and addressing this issue would go a long way towards, you would see it reach out into all of these other areas that we don't necessarily connect because it goes, so you have to go all the way back to when they started defunding and shutting down uh, these mental yeah. health hospitals 
and put that burden on the police, you know? So somebody having a, a an episode might be much better served talking to a social worker. Oh, yeah. And is not met with gun point, you know, loaded guns. Right. I mean, that's... that's, that's it's that you don't... You, you don't treat that person like they're the run-of-the-mill bank no. robber who just, you know, is, like, morally uh, bankrupt and is, you know, doing horrible shit because they're a horrible person. You know, you know, which isn't to say that those people don't exist in the world. And for those people, I want the cops to show up every time. Um, but to call police officers in on something that they are thoroughly unqualified and have no training in dealing with. And expect them to deal with it the way that they're not trained to deal with it is unrealistic as well. Exactly. And then, again, you you know, we have a big uh, problem here in Colorado with these tent cities that are popping up um, with homeless populations. Mm. And many of of the homeless are uh, mentally ill people that would be in hospitals and the community only cares about the aesthetic of how ugly these tents look on the sidewalks and that you know well, the, these people you know bring drugs and you know and what have you and it's like okay well these <laughs> exact people would be in a mental hospital yeah uh you know with their needs provided for them and maybe if they had the right meds they could integrate into society and have jobs and live on their own and and do the you know these kinds of things. So you can address the homeless issue. You can address the fact that police are overworked yeah. because they're being assigned to do things that they were never meant for in the first place. Um, the shooting uh, issue, you know, you don't want to address it as a gun issue. Then don't use the mental health thing as punting the football. Actually address the mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. And and these things just go everywhere. And if you look, even in our own government, uh, one could make an argument when you hear somebody like uh, Laura Boebert, you try to uh, spit a sentence out, um, that uh, we can do something for mental health and keep these people uh, in mental hospitals and out of Congress. Yeah, no, I agree. On a side note, total, total side note, uh, Bill... Uh... Bill tested positive, so let's keep him in our, our thoughts right now. That's why he's not with us. He's not uh, feeling too well. So, Bill, if you're uh, Bill, get day, well. Yeah, man. Uh, love you, dude. Hope you're feeling a little bit better today, buddy. Um, hope you know. Hope you don't mind that I shared your uh, your your, <laughs> your personal shit there out there. But uh, look, man, do you hear? Listen out there. Say a little. He's all right. He's not in the hospital. He's good. You know, I think he's all right. But just you know, keep him. Yeah, I hate to say the term. Just keep them. thoughts and prayers. Yeah, thoughts and thoughts, prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's finish this off with with um, chapter three, Willowbrook chapter three. I'll try to make this pretty quickly. Did you come across the story of Cropsy, Mark? Did you read anything about Cropsy? Cropsy is, <laughs> um, I no. Okay. Uh, the short answer is no. Okay. I've heard the name, but it was it was a more like a, a suburban legend. Uh, so. Cropsy is an urban legend, uh, or it's the suburban legend that was very, very popular in Staten Island. And Cropsy was an escaped madman mental patient that had a hook for a hand, and if you were out too late, he'd get you and he'd drag you back to one of the abandoned uh, asylums, right, on Staten Island, and he'd murder you, right? And that was the story of Cropsy. 
uh, in the, the Staten Island area. Okay, so July 10th, 1972, a toddler vanishes into through uh, thin air while playing in a, a, her, her neighborhood, just a few miles southeast of Willowbrook. Okay. July 15th, 1981, seven-year-old Holly Ann Hughes went missing. Her parents filed a missing persons report. Several witnesses uh, claimed to have seen the girl with a man named Andre Rand shortly before the, the disappearance. Okay. Two years later, Rand again becomes a primary suspect in the uh, abduction of an 11-year-old, uh, Tahisi Jackson. And in 1984, he is the primary suspect in the, the abduction and the, or the missing disappearance of 21-year-old Hank Gaforio, who was also developmentally disabled. Um, three years later, police finally catch a break on the investigation. Jennifer Schweiger, she's a 12-year-old girl born with Down syndrome. She goes, uh, she's reported missing July 9th, 1987. The, um, they search for her. The search lasts 35 days until it ends. Uh, this is according to the New York Times. Uh, Schweiger was found dead in a shallow grave on the former property of the Willowbrook State School, 150 yards away from where Andre Rand and a handful of other former patients at Willowbrook were living still on the campus of, uh, this is 80, 88, 89, um, on the former campus of Willowbrook State Hospital. Uh, I'm not gonna read you uh, I was going to read a, a, a quote from uh, one of the volunteers in the search committee, but it's really not necessary. It's about what they found when they found her body. It's not necessary. However, when Schweiger's body was found, Rand was charged with her murder in addition to kidnapping. Um, he actually, at one point in 1969, uh, 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 commandeered a bus full of children that was going back to a local YMCA and drove it all around town, including to an airport to watch the planes take off and land. Uh, so he got actually got charged with 25 counts of um, of kidnapping after that particular stunt. Um, now, the jury couldn't come to a verdict on the murder charge, but they did convict him on first-degree kidnapping in 1988, and he gets 25 years to life. He gets another 25 years uh, in 2004 when they found him guilty of the Hughes kidnapping, uh, and that was... Uh, Holly Ann Hughes. So 2004, there is no statute of limitations for kidnapping in, in New York. So, you know, two, oh, over two decades after, they, they find him guilty. So he's doing another 25 years to life after that. Uh, he will not be eligible for parole until 2037 when he's 93 years old. There is a documentary literally called Cropsy. This man, it's not very often when you have an urban legend that becomes true. This guy, Andre Rand, literally became the urban legend of Cropsey, minus the hook hand. He did not have the hook hand, but he literally kidnapped children and brought them back to the abandoned uh, mental hospital and murdered. Now, he was not an escaped mental patient. However, he was a formal, uh, he formerly was a custodian at Willowbrook in 1967 to 1969. Uh, so he did have a direct tie to uh, Willowbrook. So that that is like to me when I said that I, I I knew about I thought I knew about Willowbrook at the beginning of this 
we knew about the expose. I had no idea about the hep- uh, hepatitis trials, and you know, for what I would call chapter one, and I sure as shit had no idea about Cropsy coming to life, right, on the campus of Willowbrook, which I call Willowbrook chapter three. So, to end this off, we start off with, you know, hepatitis, uh, uh, vaccination clinics, you know, clinics on, on human test subjects. You've got the most vile, inhumane treatment of developmentally disabled individuals, and you fought, and, and, and you, you finish it off with a good old fashioned serial killer, uh, abducting and murdering children on the same grounds, uh, of this particular place. So, the, like I had said earlier in the podcast, with this particular fuckery, Jesus fucking Christ, man, I don't know what else to say about Willowbrook other than holy fucking shit. This, this place was just, this, this was the hardest research I had. Um, I, the hardest for me, the hardest time that I had doing research for any one of our stores was this particular story. There's no, you know, a lot of the details and things like that I did not necessarily read all, uh, I, I feel like if you listen to the podcast, I think you got the, you got the hint. Um, you know, I, I don't think the necessarily specific vision is very unique. Um, but yeah. Um, but they're powerful. Yeah. They definitely, they definitely drive the point home. Yeah. You know. Um, Mark, that's all I got for this episode. Uh, anything else that you'd like to, to, we're at an hour and 30 minutes. Wow. This is our longest episode by far. Um, but I'm all right with that. It's, uh, it's fine with me. You know, I feel like this is a, a particular subject that needed, uh, you know, as much time as it would take to talk about. As long as, as long as, as long as it takes is, that's exactly, uh, you know, my, my philosophy as well. And, uh, there are podcasts that, that go on for three hours. Yep. So I think in this particular instance, and I think even in the other ones we did, you know, with the, with the witch hunts, what do we go up to like four different parts or five different parts? Um, I think when when we're talking about something like this, you know, if we got to go a little bit over uh, the self-imposed uh, time limitation to honor the victims of this tragedy, um, then uh, I'm happy to do it. You know, one thing that really stood out to me was after the Geraldo uh, expose aired, uh, this was something I, I did not know. You know, I, I was of the impression like this thing aired and like, boom change immediately no, i thought i thought so but, too um you know i i came across uh an interview with a harvard student who got a, a summer job mm-hmm. at willowbrook yeah i read the same um, thing and he said that he along with uh 300 other people were all hired without any interview that just they were called uh, i think recreational aides yes. or something like that and the whole reason that they brought them in there was so, you know, they could lie about, I guess, technically, because they did this, uh, Willowbrook wasn't lying when they boasted about, you know, this, the staff to patient ratio. Yep, they were ordered by the courts, yeah, place. and to to appease the courts, you know, the courts, look, man, if the courts are saying, look, you need to do this, this, and this, right, and, you know, one of them is you need to hire X amount of employees. I'm pretty sure, as, you know, look, let's just be honest, as long as they show, you know, proper records that X amount of employees were hired, I don't think the court is going any further to look at how qualified these individuals are. They're not asking about the interview process. 
there saying, hey, man, did you get more bodies in there to, to take care of these people? And if, and if Willowbrook says yes, then that's about all they need. Okay, good. Put the check in the box and let's keep moving and make sure you get all three, you know, all, all 15, whatever it is that, you know, these recommendations are, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it- I thought the same thing, too. I, I thought after the expose, boom, change, and Willowbrook, you know, uh, goes down. No, man, they're open for another 15 years. It's 15 years. Right. Business, <clears throat> business as usual. And, and it was really, again, you, you come to realize, like, this is a mentality. Uh, that exists and whether you want to say it's generational or whether it's uh, money motivated um, you know you could talk about different uh, financial classes of people what what makes these people think that that they would even have the right to engage in a behavior that to me this is uh, this is the same behavior as like Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs, but the people who perpetuate it uh, institutionally at, at, at facilities uh, like Willowbrook and others like it uh, enjoy the benefit of thinking of themselves as like you know these like doctors and good altruistic people taking care of uh, of the mentally ill while they're conducting. Uh, experiments on them, like Mengele yeah, yeah. Uh, during the Holocaust. Yep, very similar. And, I mean, I would just want to say this, that uh, I believe a large part of this occurs uh, simply because of a lack of advocacy. And if you know anybody uh, that is incapable of advocating for themselves, step up and people need a voice. These people in Willowbrook and in many other hospitals, um, things have changed and they have improved. It's more incremental than I would like to see it as opposed to a sea change. But there is definitely been a shift in approach with new generations that uh, don't seem as maybe... Uh, morally bankrupt as uh, previous ones, um, that the new approach is community integration. It, it's not like that quote <laughs> from uh, the gentleman you quoted earlier uh, with the, what was it, love and affection yeah, or Tom, something Yeah, Thomas like Dewey, Governor and, Dewey. And it's not like he's trying to be kind, but what he's really being is a, a condescending... Uh, well, <laughs> okay... Sure. I'll go. I'll, I'll go, I'll I'll go nice there. That. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I guess it, I guess I crossed the line when I called uh, Krugman a cunt. I can't really <laughs> take the high road after. No, that. no, no. I think I think uh, I think that was completely justified. If uh, anybody out there is is offended by that, sorry. But Krugman was a cunt. I'm sorry. The dude was a fucking piece of <laughs> shit. And um, and his son, fuck you as well. Uh, yeah. Asshole. Fuck them. <laughs> I, I second the motion. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah. I mean. That these kind of things can only take place uh, when you have that mentality that this other group is less than yeah. you somehow. And uh, as somebody that has worked with this population, that as friends in this population, I can tell you, uh, you get you absolutely couldn't be more nope. wrong. To dehumanize any segment of the population is a sign of profound weakness and it's a means of propping yourself up at the expense of other people. It's punching down. Yep. 
and it's taking advantage of the most vulnerable. And these are the people that, uh, I mean, to say uh, that need help. When, when somebody needs help or is incapable of having a voice for themselves, um, it's, it's important when we see that. Uh, to step up yeah. and to be that voice. Well, especially when 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 their voice is necessarily, it, it, they're not allowed to necessarily have a voice because of society. Society doesn't give them a voice. Uh, then then right. it is our responsibility to 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 prop them up and to help them to to find their voice and to be their own voice. And if not, as you know, if they're not able to, then we we advocate for them. That's the point. And you know, you say you you know people who punch down. That's that is the sign. That is the surefire sign of a damaged and weak individual um, who really uh, has just probably more problems, I would say, than anybody that they are punching down on. And uh, and I'll end off with this. Um, you know, through our years working with that population, I'll tell you, it's it's it was a very uh, big realization for me. There, there was one particular young young man that we worked with, and again, names will not be uh, discussed here. And and this is in one of the major lessons that I learned. This this <laughs> this guy this guy had Down syndrome, and he he used to come into program every day. Didn't matter what the weather was outside. He wore a pair of shorts and one winter glove on his on his right hand, and he was a big John Cena fan. And he would always come up and say, um, "You know, you can't see me," and he would do the the John Cena, you can't see me thing, and it, every day it didn't matter. Give you a big hug, pick you up off the ground. I mean, it just it didn't matter. It was twenty degrees out, gym shorts, one glove. Uh, you know, it didn't matter if it was ninety five degrees out, gym shorts, one glove. It didn't matter. And the reason why I bring this story up is that guy, he was nobody but himself every day of the year. He did not put on an act. He did not try to dress in the trendy clothes. He did not be, try to be anybody other than who he was. And to me, that's the most normal human being you'll ever meet. Is the person who strives to literally be exactly who they are. And to not try to conform to be anybody else. That's the most normal thing. And when you look at the rest of society, who does everything they possibly can to conform to try to be everybody else. Or people that try to be so edgy that they end up literally being like everybody else. To name a few off the top of my head. Um, those people, that's not normal. That's not. When you strive to be any anything other than who you are, you try to literally try your best to not be who you are because you try to be everybody else. That's not, that's unnormal. That's not normal. But someone who works as hard, who just does not give a shit. And they are just who they are. That's it. Unapologetically. That's the most normal human person, human being you know. And that's, that's what I learned from that particular guy. You know? And that was a profound lesson that I learned in that entire situation of our years there was that population of people was probably the most normal people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> you know, you go out into the quote unquote real world, uh, that, that shit, what we see on a daily basis, we've got over 200, you know, mass shootings in less than 120 days or less than 130 days in a year. That's pretty on fucking me. You know, and that's, that's, that's all I got on it. So, uh, for myself, for Smith, um, thank you guys so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Bill, get well, man. Uh, hopefully your, your family, uh, is feeling better. 
Uh, Joe, just find a fucking break or something, dude. Jesus fucking God, dude. Stop fucking videotaping shit and get on the fucking podcast. Um, our listeners around the world, please, please, please make sure wherever you find your podcast that you rate, review. I don't give a shit how many stars you put in there, but just put some sort of review in because it really helps us out. Folks from Australia, fucking A, man. Keep it going. I love Bluey. That show is fucking amazing. Um, I absolutely love it. I've just started listening to Custard as well. Uh, so it's a fucking great band. Um, but yeah, guys, um, for me, uh, thank you guys very much. Love you guys. Mark, you can sign yourself out. Uh, I don't need to speak to you, my friend. Uh, as always, what an absolute privilege. Yes, Bill, our uh, thoughts and prayers are with you. Get well. Best to you and the family. Joe, you are missed. Uh, and yeah, this, this was kind of, when when we knew that uh, our other two cohorts uh, were not going uh, cohorts were uh, not going to be here, uh, this seemed like uh, the natural topic. Because even with it just being a you and I, Smith, mm-hmm. we still again went over our allotted time, and I would have felt really bad for uh, for Joe and Bill to try to get a word in edgewise on this yep. particular topic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, very eloquent in. Uh, in your conclusion, I couldn't possibly add anything to it as you, I think, really drove the point home. Yeah. People are people. Have empathy. That's it, man. And that is, uh, that's it. All right. All right, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, stay out there. Stay you. Stay weird. And we will see you guys next time on The Story of. Take care, folks.